I'd invite you to the book of Genesis chapter 3. And in light of all that we've sung this morning, I'd like to ask the question of, does it really matter? What difference does it make whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? For the majority of people inhabiting this earth, it makes no difference at all. There is even a broad swath of self-professed Christians in our world who say that it really does not matter in the end. They argue that Jesus' resurrection is a spiritual concept, not a physical reality. They gather this Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection spirit of Jesus, His memory, His legacy, His morality, His God-consciousness. All of this lives on and inspires us to emulate Him and to live a life of love as He lived a life of love. But His body? Well, we say these things in very hushed tones, but I mean, if truth were known, He really died like anybody else. It's his spirit that lives on. It's his spirit that rose from the dead, not his physical body. The point is that Jesus showed us the way to God. He was a great prophet and a teacher, and we honor him, but he didn't really rise from the dead. How hollow those words sound. Next to the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, when he wrote, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised to life. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. What we need to understand about the first followers of Jesus Christ is that they believed that Jesus rose physically from the dead and it mattered to them. They did not see themselves as mere advocates of Christ's teaching. They saw themselves as eyewitnesses of His resurrection. They believed Christ's literal resurrection from the dead was crucial to the faith in Jesus Christ. We find this truth very ably demonstrated in all of the first sermons of the early church, and I'd like us to consider the first such sermon recorded in Scripture, a masterful speech from the Apostle Peter, demonstrating who Jesus really is. To thoroughly understand this sermon, it would be best if we were all Israelites steeped in a culture that was saturated with the Old Testament. We're not, of course, but for the sake of those who maybe haven't thought through these things for some time and for the edification of all of us, I'd like to start just very briefly with a couple of pieces of the revelation that God is developing in His Word over the centuries, over the millennia, as He reveals to His people how He will save and how He will work. So we start here in Genesis 3 and verse 15, and we have this piece of the picture, Messiah. Messiah. There will be one who comes and who delivers 
God's people. Chapter 3 of Genesis and verse 15, God is speaking here to the serpent who has led in the rebellion against him on the part of Adam and Eve, and he says, God, in this prophecy, 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and here through the serpent speaking to Satan, I'll put hostility between you and the offspring of the woman, and between your offspring and hers, that is, there will be two peoples who compete. He, a singular representative of these people, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. A single representative of God's people would deal a mutual death blow to Satan. In some fashion or other, this promised one would violently assault the realm of sin and death and give his life in the process. Through the centuries, prophets were given bits and pieces of information from God to help his people understand who this was. And you can imagine why God would operate in this way. If he said, this promised one will be named this, and he will be born on this day, in this place, exactly at this time, and everyone heard all of these prophecies about him, you can imagine how many false messiahs would rise up and how many people would name their child Jesus. And Bethlehem would be the largest city on earth. Little bits and pieces, God telling his people through the centuries so that there could be no mistake who this Messiah was. This is crucial to the understanding of the development of Scripture. A major piece of information that was supplied when God revealed that he would work, is supplied when God revealed that he would work his redemptive purposes through the man Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. And verse 1, Genesis chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Genesis 12 and verse 2, I will, give, I will make you into a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. One aspect of God's promise to Abraham included the prophecy that kings would be included in his lineage. So we have Messiah, the people that come through Abraham, and then the prophecy of kings, Genesis 17 and verse 6. Repeating his promise, his covenant with Abraham, that he would be a great people, and that through Abraham would come this deliverer as God identifies Abraham's line as the people through whom the great deliverer will come. We find this additional prophecy, Genesis chapter 17 and verse 6. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Years later, God revealed this promise of kings saying that it would be realized in the descendants of Abraham's great-grandson Judah. Chapter 49 of Genesis. Chapter 49 and verse 10. Another piece to this puzzle. Who is this Messiah? He will come through Abraham. There will be kings that come through this line, through the descent of Judah. Chapter 49 and verse 10 in this prophecy concerning Judah, we read this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. 
and the obedience of the nations is his. So there would be this Messiah, this king, this ruler, who would come through the people of Judah. The next piece of the puzzle, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16. In the course of time, in the course of salvation history, God raises up for Israel a king out of Judah by the name of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, again, I want you to be thinking here, you're Israelites now, and these are the pieces that are in your mind. You know of all of this very clearly, it's in your mind, of all of these prophecies that God has laid out. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, God promises to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, he's not talking about his literal house there. He's talking about his household, his descent, his offspring. Your house, your people will rule forever. The ultimate goal, as the Israelites understood this and as further prophecy will develop, the ultimate purpose or the ultimate person here is the Messiah. This one unique deliverer will be a king who will rule forever on David's throne. Messiah means anointed one. We as Westerners speak of crowning a king. The Hebrews would speak of anointing a king. Messiah means the anointed one. It speaks of him as a kingly figure. One more piece. We're skipping all kinds of pieces, but just laying out maybe several corners of the puzzle and a couple pieces in between to get the, the basic idea. And that is the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. Somewhere around 800 B.C., we don't know exactly the date, but God revealed to the prophet Joel that a day would come in which God would pour out His Spirit on His people. In that day, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, Joel says, chapter 2, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. On Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. This king would come and would present himself in Jerusalem, and there deliverance would, be, would come, says Joel. So this theme of deliverance through Messiah runs as a golden thread throughout the entire Old Testament. Now let's fast forward in your text, if you can turn to Acts chapter 2. We go to the festival of, festival of Pentecost, arguably somewhere around 33 A.D., 1,000 years after David prophesies. It is less than two months after Jesus' crucifixion in the city of Jerusalem, and there is on this occasion a great stir in the city. Chapter 2 of Acts reveals, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? 
then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? The languages are listed, and then in verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some of them made fun, said they have to be drunk with wine. That's the only explanation. Peter stands up at this place representing the disciples, and he claims that the wind and the tongues of fire and this miraculous speech, speaking languages they had never studied, is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Now for these Jews, they have this prophecy in mind, what Joel has said, deliverance will come to Jerusalem. God will pour out His Spirit upon His people. And Peter is saying that this is partial fulfillment, initial fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse 16, he says, no, they are not drunk with wine. What This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now at verse 14 then, in the text, and beginning uh, there at 17, he quotes Joel. But what Peter is doing here is giving an introduction to a sermon. We will not take time to look into this very specifically. But he is saying, remember this passage in Joel chapter 2. And you notice there in your text at verse 17 that he quotes that passage. And says, this is what is happening Deliverance has come. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, verse 21. Joel prophesied the outpouring of the Spirit, and in that prophecy there was this reference to calling on the name of the Lord for salvation. That's his introduction. Now at verse 22, Peter demonstrates that the Lord, Joel prophesied, quoted here in verse 21, is none other than Jesus Christ. That is a bold claim, and Peter labors to demonstrate his proposition with four proofs that Jesus is Lord. First of all, verse 22, he says that God accredited Jesus by miracles. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which he did among you through him as you yourselves know. How did God display that he was at work in Jesus? How did he accredit Jesus' work? By miracles, wonders, and signs. Miracles are works of power. Wonders, drawing attention to the attention that was gained by these miracles, and signs were a mark of genuineness. In other words, the miracles of Jesus were intended to demonstrate that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. That was the point of them. One Jewish official caught this idea when he visited Jesus one night. He came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. That was the whole point of the miracles. God was accrediting Jesus to Israel. In contrast to Nicodemus' notion, the Jewish enemies of Jesus said what? This man performs miracles by the power of Satan. That's our conclusion. The Roman historians who wrote about Jesus, having really not much of a clue about who he was, came up with this notion fairly consistently in their writings, Jesus was a magician. What is interesting in all of the critics of Jesus is that no one denied his miracles. 
That didn't come until centuries later, when everybody was dead and everybody that knew anybody that was there was dead and long gone. Then people began to say he really didn't work the miracles, it was just tricks. Everyone living in the time of Jesus saw blind people see and deaf people hear and lame people walk. And a number of these people were individuals who were born blind and born lame and born deaf. And the whole community knew that they had been healed. They watched as Jesus demonstrated his power over nature and over the supernatural realm as he cast out demons. And they even watched as Jesus raised the dead. The only question the enemies of Jesus entertained was how he did what he did, by what power he performed his miracles. The fact that he never used his powers for himself, never used his powers for evil, and used those powers to assault Satan and the realm of death was accreditation to any honest person that Jesus Christ performed his powers through the power of God. He was accredited to you by miracles. Notice the text says in verse 22, which God did among you through him. God was the primary source of the power. Jesus, the agent through whom the power flowed, and the Jews were the witnesses, as he says there at the end of verse 22, as you yourselves know. Word of Jesus' miracles had traveled throughout Israel and surrounding regions. This was news to no one. Jesus was accredited by his miracles. Secondly, God delivered Jesus to his executioners. And notice how that is said. God delivered Jesus to his executioners. Again, pointing to the power of God behind Christ. Verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. A historical note here, verse 23, but also a theological note as the first part of this verse indicates. Verse 23a, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The one God empowered through his miracles, he also handed over to death. Jesus was not the victim of bad luck. He was the agent of God's sovereign plan and foreknowledge. The second part of verse 23 says that you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. In other words, God delivered Jesus into the hands of the Jewish authorities who negotiated with the Roman authorities, the lawless ones, the text reads, and they together then freely, willingly fastened Jesus with spikes to an executioner's cross. For the Jews, crucifixion was the final confirmation that Jesus had been cursed by God. Deuteronomy 21-23, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Some of the Jews, it is noted, even referred to Jesus derogatorily after his death as the hataloi, the hanged one. The hanged one. What's the chilling point for Peter's hearers? The chilling point is that the one God accredited by miracles, they murdered. But that's not the end of the story. God accredited Jesus by miracles, verse 22. God delivered Jesus to his executioners, verse 23. Thirdly, God raised Jesus from the grave, verse 24 and following. But God raised him from the dead. 
freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. We have historical reality here in verse 24. Remember, Peter is defending this strange behavior on the part of the disciples, and it is no mistake, it's not without significance, that his argument hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Notice that, keep that in mind, and it will make sense as we move through. It was, he says there at the end of verse 24, impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why is that? Well, we've seen the historical reality. We notice now the prophetic necessity. Verse 25, David said about him, and there's a word missing here from our English text that I wish was here. It's it's that simple word, for. For, David said about him. It was impossible for Jesus to remain in the grave because... David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope. Let's stop there for a moment. He's going back, where are we now? We're thinking Jewish here. We go back a thousand years. King David, the greatest king of Israel. Yes, he did say that, Peter. He was talking about himself. And he was speaking about the presence of God and how much a comfort that was to him in the 16th Psalm, which Peter here quotes. David declares his joyful confidence in the protective presence of God. And what does he say there in verse 26? So grateful is he that his heart rejoices, his tongue rejoices, his body lives in hope or is staked on or planted on hope. Now wait a minute, David, why your body? Why is your body hopeful? Why bring that in at this place? Verse 27, he gives his confidence, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Now what... Peter is driving at is that 27th verse. Obviously, David is expressing his joy in the presence of God. But there's a problem, isn't there, with verse 27. You will will not abandon me to the grave, and I think that's a good translation. If your translation says Hades, that is the meaning of it, the realm of the dead. But the second part there, particularly of verse 27, really doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. David died, and his body decayed. So this leads naturally to anyone who's going to read this fairly slowly and start thinking about it. Who is this Holy One to whom David refers in verse 27? Well, easy answer, David's wrong. He had confidence that his body would never see decay in the grave. Or, another possibility, maybe the Holy One is someone other than David here. Who is he? Who is this? Peter takes up that very question in verse 29. So he's quoted David in in Psalm 16, and now he says to these who are listening, verse 29, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. 
that very gracious just 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 on this very hill in Jerusalem, you know today where the tomb of David is, and you know that inside that tomb, his bones have turned to dust. He's been there for a thousand years. There's only one conclusion as we read this psalm, says Peter, and that is that David is not talking about himself. Rather, verse 30, Peter goes on to argue, he was a prophet And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Who's that descendant? Not one descendant, as in there would be only one son of David that would reign on the throne, Solomon. But he knew that there was the descendant, this greater son, this Messiah, whom the Old Testament scriptures have been prophesying through the centuries and through the many prophets. This one, says Peter, David recognized that God had promised him on oath that he would place this descendant on his throne. And what had God said to David? He would rule there forever. So David apparently concludes here that this descendant whom God promised would rule forever would somehow escape the corruption of death. Fair conclusion, right? When God tells you that, this one descendant will reign forever. David says then, this Holy One, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Peter draws the only uh, conclusion that he can, verse 31, seeing what was ahead, he's talking here of David, seeing what was ahead, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. The Christ doesn't mean here Jesus, well it does, but it's not how Peter's using it. He's saying here the Christ, the Messiah. It's a technical term. Seeing what was ahead, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. How clearly David understood what he saw in the future, we do not know, but he did understand that the Christ, the Messiah, would not suffer corruption and sees in God's promises to him a reflection to a greater son who would rule and never see corruption. This is a historical reality. Verse 24, it is a prophetic necessity, this resurrection of Jesus, and it is a witness certainty, verse 32, says Peter, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. What is Peter saying there? There's only one person who died and did not suffer physical decay. I announce to you Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one about oak in Psalm 16. People of Israel, we watched Jesus die. And we saw him in his resurrected body. He is alive. And he never saw decay. We are witnesses of this fact. Will you please note that again, verse 32. We are all witnesses of the fact. The disciples of Jesus, let me repeat, saw themselves as more than teachers of Jesus' theology. As important as it was for them to tell you what Jesus taught, 
It was their persistent witness that Jesus rose from the dead. We are here, can I throw it into our language for Peter, we are here jumping up and down, screaming and telling you what happened. Not just what he taught, but what took place. He rose from the dead. We saw him die. You saw him die. He was buried, but he lives today, and he has fulfilled the ancient prophecy. No corruption, though he passed through death. Let's not forget again, Peter is arguing as to why the strange behavior on the part of the disciples. And he adds then at this point a fourth point about Jesus. Verse 33, God exalted Jesus as Lord of all. Peter continues, verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in her here. He is exalted. It is not merely Jesus' Spirit which lives on. He lives on. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And He does not live on in a reincarnated revisitation of earth in various prophets over the centuries and, and through time. He rules the universe today from heaven's throne. As Joel prophesied, the promised Holy Spirit was poured out now, and that is what you are seeing and hearing. The resurrected Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, is doing this. He is pouring out the promised Spirit, marking the dawn of the Messianic age. Now to the critic in Peter's audience, somebody's out there saying, oh, come on, Peter. Really? That's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Something phenomenal is happening, we know that, but how can you prove that it's Jesus up there who is producing this effect down here on earth? Glad you asked, said Peter. Please turn with me to Psalm 110. I'm, that's Peter talking, you don't need to do that, because it's right here in our text. He says, turn to Psalm 110. It's been around for a thousand years, people. It's been prophesied. Verse 34, David did not ascend to heaven, did he? Remember the tomb right over there on the south side of this hill? David's tomb over there? He didn't ascend to heaven, did he? His body's over there in that tomb. Now, it's not saying that David didn't go to heaven in spirit. It's saying that physically David did not ascend to heaven, did he? We have to acknowledge that point. David did not ascend to heaven, verse 34, and yet he said, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this psalm had caused no small difficulty to the Jewish rabbis because it made no sense. Let's spend a little bit of time thinking about it. The Lord... Now what we miss here in English is we have two word lords. In Hebrew it's actually two different words, but both refer to God. So in Hebrew it reads, Yahweh said to Adon. Yahweh said to my Adon. God said to my God. But two different words. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Upon careful review, it becomes clear that David speaks of a king of Israel and a done whom God seats at his right hand. That king is not David. If you refer to yourself as my Lord, you need to see somebody, right? We don't talk about ourselves as my Lord. He's not referring to himself. Now, David is a monarch. 
There's no other king. So to whom is he referring? He's not referring to himself. He must be referring to a descendant. Which means that David calls his descendant what? Adon. My Adon. My Lord. My descendant. Now, we might be on the verge of accepting that, some father calling his son my Lord, in our Western individualist way of thinking. That will never fly in Hebrew thought. No son is ever greater than his father in Hebrew thought. You come from your father, therefore everything that you are and everything that you become owes its roots and its origin to your father. No son is ever greater than his father. So let's put that together. King David, the greatest king of Israel, calls one of his descendants my Lord. And that sends cold chills up Hebrew spines. He's referring once again to this Messiah. So as Psalm 16 did not refer to David, his body did decay, this verse does not refer to him either. He did not ascend to the right hand of God. Yet a descendant of David would ascend into heaven, and a man preaching this sermon watched him do it. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, Peter was there when Jesus physically ascended into heaven. And if I can say it again, Peter's jumping up and down and saying, it happened. The prophecy of David does not apply to him. His body's over there in that tomb, but it applies to his greater son, Jesus Christ, whom we watched ascend into heaven physically. He's there now, and that's why what's happening here in Jerusalem is happening, because he's pouring out the Spirit as the prophets had foretold. And the miracles are demonstration of this fact. There can only be one conclusion, verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord, supreme sovereign of the universe. Christ, the Messiah of Israel, long prophesied. Now it says here that God made this Jesus, Lord and Christ. That doesn't mean that Jesus became Lord and Christ after he ascended to heaven. Rather, it was not until he suffered death that he completed all that Messiah had been sent to do. He was Messiah during his lifetime. He claimed to be Messiah during his lifetime. But now he has fulfilled the work of Messiah. And so in that sense, God has acknowledged him, has made him, has completed him as Messiah. He's the one everyone's been looking forward to. And as Lord, today he is seated at the right hand of God and has poured out his spirit in accordance with Joel's prophecy. The text actually ends in a different way than we find here in the English with the phrase, my Lord, or, or Lord and Christ. And some translations, the ESV, the NAS, will put it properly. It actually ends with the phrase, whom you crucified. That's the conclusion of Peter's sermon. He lets that ring, leaves that ringing in their ears. Remember verse 21? as he quoted Joel's prophecy, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. Who is that Lord? Peter has demonstrated that that Lord is Jesus Christ. He is the very one to whom you must come for salvation, and He is the very one whom you crucified. Imagining minds saturated with the Hebrew Scriptures, hearing the prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ, prophecies no one else could ever fulfill. It is not confusing to us the response of verse 37. When the people had heard this, heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What gracious words. God accredited him. God gave his life to die in the sinner's behalf. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, and you killed him. But he will forgive you. If you repent, if you turn, what does it really matter? From a biblical standpoint, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then his body saw no corruption, or then his body saw corruption. If he did not rise from the dead, his body saw corruption, and he does not fulfill Psalm 16. If Jesus did not rise from the dead and did not ascend then, he did not ascend then bodily into heaven. He is not then seated at the right hand of God, according to Psalm 110, ruling there until the consummation. And if he is not doing that, then he is not Lord and he is not Christ. If Jesus did not rise physically from the dead, to say it another way, we are trusting in myths. We are building a house on quicksand. But if he did rise from the dead, as his faithful eyewitnesses adamantly maintain, then he is Lord of heaven and earth. And on this point, we should perhaps allow Peter's body language to preach as strong a message as his words. Just a few weeks before this sermon, where was Peter? A few weeks before this sermon, he was cowering in a hole, fearful that he would be found out, having only freshly rejected that he even knew Jesus Christ. And where is Peter today? standing before thousands of people announcing boldly that this Jesus whom I denied, this Jesus that I ran away from, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and He is Lord of heaven and earth. Something happened to Peter. He saw the resurrected Christ. Having seen the resurrected Christ and having witnessed his bodily ascension into heaven, Peter now preached boldly before thousands and in the end, in fact, gave his life for Christ. 
He knew Jesus Christ was alive, and he knew that it mattered. He was now serving the Lord of the universe. Seated at the right hand of God, ruling in heaven until his enemies on earth are made a footstool for his feet. That is, until they are fully conquered and defeated. That is the Christ that Peter served. The question for us today, is that the Christ that you serve? It really matters. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father God, we are awed by the intricacies of your word knit together through the ages. We are awed by the account of Jesus Christ and we realize that it is an account that is beyond comprehension ultimately. That he would come as God and man and take on our sin and rise from the dead. It is beyond our comprehension. But we trust your word and we thank you for the witness of the Spirit of God who confirms to us this truth. And I pray, Father, with all of my heart and soul that each one who is here today will recognize that Jesus is Lord and Christ and will come to follow him and to know Him. If there are any that are without that saving faith in Him, I ask that you'll bring them to that faith. Open their eyes to the truth of the gospel of Christ, crucified and risen. And I pray that they would repent, turn from their sins, realizing that you have given your life to die in their place to pay the penalty of those sins. May they in simple faith trust that truth. and follow you. I pray, God, for those who do know you as Lord and Savior, I pray, God, that there would be a commitment in our hearts, in our hearts, and a desire on our hearts to serve Jesus as Lord in Christ. I ask that you will confirm these truths to our souls and draw us to yourself on this Easter Sunday. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.